Welcome to the teaching ministry of Walt East, lead chaplain at Sky Valley Chapel. We hope this teaching will serve as a practical guide for your daily walk as a Christ follower. We encourage you to follow along with your Bible and life notes, which can be found in the podcast show notes or on our website at svmin.com. His throat is dry. It's scratchy when he tries to swallow, and his, his eyes are, are heavy. And in the, in the dark of the morning, he knows that he needs to sleep. The toll of the last few days have really taken on him. More importantly, how late he stayed up the previous evening. And the journey that is still ahead, he thinks that, and he knows that his body needs rest. But for now, there's something that's more important that he must do. He will push himself up off of the floor and, and he'll let his eyes adjust to a, to a room which is dark. There's bodies laying one next to another across the floor. And as he stands, he slowly gets up and he, and he grabs a cloak and he puts it around himself. And as silently as he can, he tries to move the latch on the door. As he opens it, he realizes that there's about a 30-degree difference between the outside air and the air that's inside the small house with all the bodies that are sleeping in there. And he shivers as he pulls the cloak up over his head and, and steps out into the darkness. As silently as he opens the door, he now shuts it so as not to awaken anybody else. And he begins to walk. Very few will be on the road at that time of the morning. Those that, that are, they're the early ones. They're the ones trying to get the day going for the others who will get up when the sun rises. Usually they're just paying attention to themselves, and he, he keeps his face down to the, to, the, to the street because he doesn't want to attract any attention. What he has to do, he has to do alone. He knows that. And he knows that if he has any shot at success for this day, that this is priority number one. I love stories, but I have to admit that I, I have a tendency, and you probably do, to gravitate towards the action in stories. But what happens next in Mark's story that he's telling, this pause that happens, what happens in the dark hours before the sun rises it's easy to miss as we go from scene to scene. This, is, this has been over the years one of my favorite parts of Scripture. Because after a day that's packed full of ministry, it's a great example to me and it's a great example to you that we're going to look at here. Today I want us to, to think about this. I want us to capture this. I want to bring us all back to something that's easy to miss but oh so important. Four weeks ago, we started this journey in Mark chapter 1, page by page and, and verse by verse, trying to figure out who was this man? Who was this Messiah or myth who 2,000 years ago split the fabric of time by which our dating system is reckoned? Who was this man that, that, that some call Savior and others use his name as a swear word? If you weren't here last week, you missed it. Jesus' first time in church after, after beginning his ministry. He walks in and this demon-possessed guy starts shrieking, What do you want with me? And the demon calls him the Holy One of God. And Jesus says two words, 
Be quiet. Be quiet. And he casts the demon out, and it comes out of the man with a shriek, and, and everyone in church is amazed. They ask each other, what is this? What is this teaching? And with such authority, he even gives orders to evil spirits, and they obey him. And news about him spreads quickly throughout Galilee. We pick up this week in, in verse 29 of Mark chapter 1. Yeah, we're going slowly. Yeah, it's going to take us a while. We probably won't even get finished this season, but that's okay. Because I want us to go through is I want us to understand. Many of us know the stories, but do we really understand who this man is? And a few weeks ago, I asked you, I encouraged you, those of you that weren't here, I encouraged ones that were here to, to, to read through the Gospel of Mark. It only takes about an hour, hour and 15 minutes. You're a little bit slow reader like, reader like me. Read through it, and then read through it again and again. He starts in verse 29. He says, As soon as they left the synagogue, they went with James and John to the home of Simon and Andrew. Simon's mother-in-law... Now, if a guy has a mother-in-law, that means he's what? Mary. Okay, there you go. Some people, oh, were the apostles married? There's, a, there's an answer for you. I get asked that sometimes. So Simon's mother-in-law was in bed with a fever, and they told Jesus about her. So he went to her, he took her hand, and he helped her up. And the fever left her, and she began to wait on them. Now, this day is going one thing after another, after another, after another. And I'm sure you've had days like that. I've had ministry days like that. There were times in, when I was in the Navy that, that I wore three different uniforms in one day as I went from one ceremony or one engagement or something to another. I had to change clothes like Clark Kent or something to get there where I was. And this happens one over, over, over. And what happened there in the, in the synagogue, in their church, if you will, that day, the news spread. Demon-possessed man, God healed, man drops to the floor. This was a day that you really missed it if you weren't there. And news is spreading quickly throughout the northern seashore of Galilee, even without social media. Figure that out. They get to Simon Peter's house, and his mother-in-law is sick with fever. And the one with words that casts out demons, the one who speaks and nature obeys, now has this incredible compassion. I told you we'd see it this week. We saw power last week. We see compassion now. He has this incredible compassion, and he simply touches her hand and raises her up. And then she goes in the kitchen to wait on him. Huh? Doesn't sound very politically correct to me. You know, something patriarchal going on here. You've got a bunch of hungry guys in the first century, and the lady in the house is, is down with a fever, and you've, you've got a healer in order to get her to wait on them? This doesn't look good. But there's nothing sexist here at all. There's nothing forced. There, it's nothing that Jesus needed or any other guys needed that he couldn't have provided on his own. It just shows the overwhelming compassion of this Christ who can speak a word and demons understand, but sees the fever in a sick lady and touches her and raises her up. And she has the only human response that you and I have been, been wrestling with already in these first few weeks. She has the only human response to the incredible power and the incredible compassion of Jesus, and that is to serve. If we're not serving, have we been touched by Jesus? I mean, that could be a message in and all itself. If we're not serving, have we been touched by Jesus? 
If we're not doing everything that we can to say, you know, to say, what can I do? Well, how can I serve you, Lord? Then have we really had an encounter with this God? And the first thing she does after being healed is she gets up and she serves. She starts to serve. Jesus touches her. She has her dignity back. I mean, I don't know about you ladies, but if you have this, this rabbi come into your house, you have a house full of people, you don't want to be laying in bed with a fever, do you? Ladies, take that personally. I know I'm married to one of them. You've got a house full of people coming. It's not the time that you want to be sick. And the mother-in-law gets up and serves. Why do we love the people in our community? Why do we try to love our neighbors, especially ones we don't like? Because we've been touched by God. This isn't a sexism thing that's happening in chapter 1. She has this dignity. She, she says, man, once the, once the creator of the universe touches me, the son of God touches me, i got to serve. And I'm sure that Peter and the guy said, Ema, you've been down for a few days. You've been sick. You know, why don't you just take it easy and we'll, we'll, we'll serve. And she says, oh, my gosh, not in my kitchen. And so she gets up. And in the midst of this, in the midst of all this stuff going on, there's a knock at the door. And as the metal latch clicks and the wooden door swings open, you see a sea of faces outside the door. News has spread. There's something different going on. Church wasn't like regular church today. Something with power and authority is happening. And watch what happens. That evening after sunset, and take your life notes if you will. Go ahead and circle sunset there. We're going to come back to that in a few minutes. That evening after sunset, the people brought to Jesus all the sick and demon-possessed. The whole town gathered at the door, and Jesus healed many who had various diseases. He also drove out many demons, but he would not let the demons speak because they knew who he was. Now let me just give you a little aside here for a moment. There's, there's things in Mark's gospel. Who do we say was, was the source, Mark's source for these stories about Jesus? Who? I heard over here, Peter. Peter was Mark's source. Peter was there for all this stuff, and Peter is... Is, is, is telling Mark, saying, and as you, go through, as you go through this gospel reading, there's some things you ought to look out for, and one of these little tiny details. Here he says, where were they? At the door. Later, when, when Jesus calms a storm, Peter says to Mark, hey, and he was asleep on the cushion. You know, the source of the story in Mark, in that chapter, Mark is either four or five, if I remember correctly, is, is someone that was there and saw that little cushion that Jesus was sleeping on. There's little details, and you can see that, and you know that Mark's source was a first-hand account. He wasn't, Mark wasn't one of the 12, but someone that was there through all this stuff gave this to Mark. So it says that he, he wouldn't let them talk, and so how long do you think, how long do you think after sunset it took to deal with all these people, to deal with the whole town? And I think that Jesus is doing this personally. Because that's the only way we find him doing ministry in the Gospels. Could the Holy Spirit have had him just wave his hand over the entire town and everybody's healed? Yeah, the Holy Spirit can do that. But Jesus deals with people personally, and that's important for us to understand. He's dealing with every disease, every sickness. He was dealing individually with the folks. And knowing what we know, if you've already read ahead in the story, which I hope you have, if you've read ahead, you, you know that he talks to them. Oftentimes he'll ask them questions. He'll say, how long, and this and like, like that. He isn't just, just stopping, here, get healed, get healed, get healed, get healed. No, he deals with them on a personal level because we have a personal Savior. 
And so they came, all of the needy in the entire town gathered after sunset. First century understanding of, of health and, and medicine where, where a simple illness, a simple infection, a, a fever can take away a family member, can kill them. And could you imagine the amount of, of family trauma and tragedy that was represented there? She hasn't walked since she was two. It was an unfortunate accident. We won't get into the details to, to spare the family of those involved, but ever since then we've, we've carried her on a sled. And she's seen the world backwards as we've carried her, and she's been on the sled looking back wherever we're going. And there's a rumor that we've heard of, of one that can touch and heal. There's, there's a rumor of one that, that casts demons out. Well, I tell you, if you hear that, you grab your daughter, who's now 10 years old, and you make sure she's comfortable in that little makeshift sled that she rides around on. You grab the bars and you'll travel any distance to get her to this healer. The next phrase in Mark's gospel is where we simply started today. Very early in the morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up, left the house, and went off to a solitary place where he prayed. Simon and his companions went to look for him. And when they found him, they exclaimed, everyone is looking for you. Whoever you've healed that night, they have friends, don't they? You tend to know other families who have sick, who are blind, who have cripples in their family. Can you imagine that night going back home and whatever you've had to deal with for the past 2, 10, 15, 20 years is now healed? My bet is that like Peter's mother-in-law, you're not saying, oh, I just need to go to sleep tonight. You probably can't sleep. And you're probably thinking, who else can I tell about this good news, about this miracle worker that's in town? We've got to tell Carol. Carol's got to get her son Sam. Oh, my gosh, they've got to bring Sam to this. Do you know who else needs this? Well, well, what about the other two blind guys that you used to hang out with? Let's go get them. For the first time in your life, you know, you're going to see those friends that you hadn't seen. And what time do you think the line starts the next morning? If he's going to leave the house, he has to leave very early. He has to leave very early when it's dark, but long before dawn. So Jesus got up and he stepped over the sleeping bodies, the snoring bodies, probably Peter snoring, those that have crashed in the small house, the, the heat inside, the body heat sleeping, such a small house compared to the cool air. It's got to send a chill up Jesus' spine, but, he, but he's got to get away. He's got to get away from the crowd, and he seeks out a solitary place, and there he prays. Now, remember, these fishermen are new to this whole thing. He just picked them up on the sea chapter earlier in this chapter, uh, just some days ago. They're new to the whole Jesus routine. They don't understand what, what it is, what his routine is like. And so there's, a, there's another knock on that door right about sunrise, and they open door, and guess what? They see even more people than came last night at the house, and there's a line, and, and one of them says, someone get Jesus, wake him up, get him, wait, wait a minute, where is he? Well, he, he, was, he was here last night. He was sleeping right over there in the, in, in the corner. And when the town and the neighborhoods and the surrounding town gathers, there's a search party. They go looking for Jesus. You see, the disciples aren't used to the discipline that Jesus has. This, this little thing called prayer. We'll find it all throughout Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. At this point, he's just gone. 
missing in action. And so they look for him, and when they find him, they tell him the good news. He says, Master, the entire town has come back, and there's even more. Everyone is looking for you. And if, if you're a church planner, if you're brand new and you want to start a ministry, how much of the town do you want to reach? All of it. And that he's done that in one day. This is success. Man, this is going to be amazing. Everyone's back. But look at his response. Jesus replied, Let us go somewhere else, to the nearby villages, so I can preach there also. That is why I have come. So he traveled throughout Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and driving out demons. And my question, in the midst of all this action and, and, and the line at night, the demon-possessed man and the healed mother-in-law whose fever left in the midst of the morning where everyone's brought their stretchers and, and carried their, their, their sick, what happened in those moments of pause? What happened in that moment for him to know, this is who I am, this is what I'm supposed to do, and this is where I'm supposed to do it? And how in the world, as we, we look at all the action, can we come back and, and just find that out? How much life would be far simpler if you knew and I knew who we were, what we were supposed to do, and where we were supposed to do it? Wouldn't that solve so many questions for us? Today, in the midst of looking at this action, I want to I jump down and, and I want to look at this pause there. Because there's a hint here that we're going to start we're going to start talking about over the coming weeks as we go through this study in, in Mark. And if you can't be here for every week, that's okay. We put the podcast out, as most of you know, on, a, on our website, on our Facebook page. You can get them through the Internet, through Apple, on your Google device. And I waited until this part because it's said twice here in this part. I want to take you back to verse 38 there. Jesus replied, Let us go somewhere else to the nearby villages. Why? so I can preach there also. That is why I have come. I want you to circle preach there. Circle preach in your life notes. Put a number three next to it. I'm going to explain in a minute. He says, this is why I've come. This is what I'm about. And then verse 39, following right after that, says, so he traveled throughout Galilee what? Preaching. preaching. Guess what I want you to do? Circle preaching and put a number four after it. He traveled throughout Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and driving out demons. Now, you can probably guess if, if I've given you a three and a four, there must be a what? There must be a one and a two. Well, yeah, there are going to be a five and a six later, too. Look back at verse 14. After John was put in prison, Jesus went to Galilee, what? Proclaiming. The good, okay, it's the same word in the Greek. Okay, preaching, Caruso, he's preaching, he's proclaiming, he's teaching. So circle proclaiming and put a number one by it. You guys are good. Okay, Mark is, is getting to Jesus last week. Where do you introduce Jesus? What, where do you start with? And Mark, Mark starts off with him proclaiming, preaching, teaching. That's what he's about. And so when Mark starts writing, he starts telling us about his teaching. Looking out at verse 21, which again I gave you. It's from last week, but you, you got it there. Once Jesus had grabbed the fishermen, once he'd started gathering his disciples, it says they went into Capernaum, and when the Sabbath came, Jesus went into the synagogue and began to teach. He began to teach. 
Yes, he did, the, he did the other stuff. He healed the man. He cast the demon out of the man. But he went there to teach. Now I'll put there, put a number two by it. So, so far, just in the first chapter, we have Jesus coming to proclaim. He goes to people to teach. And when the people come wanting miracles, he goes out to a lonely place and he, and he prays. And that's when he's, what he realizes. I came to preach. The third time, and then the next sentence it says he goes to the nearby towns and villages and starts preaching. We have the fourth time. We're going to get to five and six, as I said, but not today. But I want to point out, if we're going to be Christians and call ourselves Christ followers, and we're reading a book on Christ, the stories of Christ, Mark's making it very clear what Jesus' purpose was to teach. He's, he, he's not there just to fix lives. He's, he's not just there to, to, to take care of things that are messed up. You know, he, he's like, we got to get out of town. And the guys go, seriously? Everybody's here. They've gathered. This is going to be a great crusade, Jesus. Well, that's going to be a sad day. What do you mean? Because we're leaving. Well, well can, we, can we go back there and, and tell him? He says, no, because you'll never get away from him if you go back. And he leaves. And he goes to the nearby towns and villages. And he starts teaching. Why? Because that is why I came, he said. As we move on in the life of Jesus, we're going to see him with lepers. We're going to see him with paralyzed guys. We're going to see him doing miracles. And there's a part of me that, that wants to say, well, what about them? What about those people that, that came that next morning? What about them? What happened at the house that day? What happened with the guy that picked up his little girl simply because of an accident and carried her on that sled all the way there to Peter's house? What about that guy? What about the guy who's standing there who, who had an overnight journey when his friend came to tell him, hey, you need to come see this miracle worker. I think he can fix you. He's traveled a great distance and, and, and he's there. And in the early morning hours, someone has to bring word back, Jesus isn't returning. No, 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 no. We, we told the disciples we'd wait here. We, we, we told them, you know, my little girl needs healed. Yeah, Jesus knows about your little girl. I'm sorry, bro. He knows about it, but he's not going to be back today. He said he had to go teach some stuff. And there's a line of crushed and disappointed people, frustration, because something happened long before dawn in a solitary place, and Jesus knew who he was, he knew what he was supposed to do, and he knew where he was supposed to do it. And he left incredible success knowing that there were going to be some hurt people. There were going to be some incredibly frustrated people to go teach, to do what he knew he needed to do. We have to understand this because it's throughout the books that if we follow a God whose main goal is to teach, then our main purpose and goal in following him better be to what? To learn and to teach. To learn and to teach. If we follow God whose main goal is to teach, then our goal is as disciples we need to learn and then we need to pass on the teachings to learn and learn and grow and and change so that we can be like him so that we ourselves can say i'm going to teach i'm going to share i'm going to proclaim i'm going to spread this that is what my christ is all about and he, when he touches me i'm going to serve i'm going to serve in all the ways that he served that is our calling but how many of us are quicker than jumping in the line to learn? How many of us are quicker to jump in the line to get? 
Now, I'll be the first. You know, so oftentimes my prayers are, are about what's going wrong or what I need help with or, or what I need, what I want to get. And there's a line of people saying, we need help. We need help. And he goes, we're not even going back to the line. No, 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 these are real needs. These are life and death needs. These will change a family forever. He goes, yeah, that's the problem. If I go back and they're going to think that that's all I'm about, and I'm not just all about that. So we're going to go someplace else so that I can teach. Now, I know some of you are looking at your life notes and you're seeing all those blanks staring you in the face. You're saying, well, when is he going to get to filling in the notes here? Okay, so here you go. Let me give you three dangers. Let me give you three dangers at the start of the journey. Three dangers that we've already uncovered in trying to follow Christ. And the first one is religion. Religion can actually keep us from Jesus. Religion can actually keep us from Jesus. When the people that are, that are accustomed to, go to going to, to church, or in their case, the synagogue, when they encounter the true Christ, they're amazed, they're surprised, they're shocked at the power and the authority. And their question is, what is this? And the people that are being religious have no idea what an encounter with Christ is all about. I had you circle there in verse 32. What word do I have you circle there? The word sunset. I'm going to illustrate this for you. I had you circle sunset. Well, out to the side of sunset, write the word Sabbath. Write the word Sabbath. They went to Capernaum and when the Sabbath came, that's why they'd been to church, okay? They went to church and went to synagogue on the Sabbath. It's a Sabbath day. All this stuff happened on the Sabbath day. Afterward, they went, they went to have Sunday dinner at Peter and Andrew's house. Mama was sick. Jesus healed her. And then that evening, that evening after sunset. Now, why did the people wait till sunset? Because of their religion. Because they couldn't come there while it was still Sabbath. Sabbath is over. You know, the way the Jews uh, reckoned their days... The day the Sabbath began on what we call Friday at sunset, and it ended on Saturday at sunset. So they had to wait till after the Sabbath was over because they had religious laws, laws that said you couldn't walk more than a Sabbath day journey, about a half a mile at most on the Sabbath. You can't carry a child. You can't help a disease. You can't have a sick person lean on you. And even Jesus, if you've read through Mark, you've seen, he gets in trouble with the religious authorities for healing on the Sabbath. Because even if you brought your sick person to Peter and Andrew's house, you couldn't dare ask Jesus to heal again on the Sabbath because it's considered work. And so they have to wait because of religion. They have to wait till after sunset. And as the sun goes down, Sabbath is over. Quick, grab Sam. Let's go find the miracle worker. And religion has kept them from a God that came to earth because he desperately wanted to be with them. The word religion, if you look up the, 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 the definition of it, it means simply to link or to bind. And in the right way and form and, and function, it can bind us to this Christ. But in the wrong way, it can chain us and keep us away from all the power and authority that Christ has. Let me tell you the second danger. The second danger is chasing the miracles, not the message. You realize in all the Gospels, if you were to count up the miracles of Jesus in all the Gospels, there's only about roughly 37, depending on how you count them. Only 37 miracles that are recorded in the Gospels. And a lot of those aren't even healing or done for two humans. 
like calming the storm or like walking on water. Those are miracles, but it's not meeting someone's need there. Fish to feed 5,000 people, turning water into wine. That kind of meets people's needs there. So right now we're already down to about 31 or 32 miracles for people. And, and Jesus, Jesus didn't come to do a lot of miracles. His compassion allows the power of God, the power of the Holy Spirit to, to, to heal and, and to bless. But that's not his ultimate goal. His ultimate goal, as he says, is to come and to teach. And in fact, here he's avoiding a line of people who the only thing they're seeking is miracles. He's saying this isn't what it's all about. You need to be careful what you line up for. If he has come to teach, then our goal better be to line up and say, God, teach me. May I learn? Let me give you the third danger. It's close, but it's slightly different. It is when we start seeking God for success, not surrender. When we start seeking God for success, not surrender. I'm sure Peter and the guys loved this popularity. I'm sure they loved the miracles. I'm sure they loved this machine of, of ministry that, is, that has reached the entire town in a day. You know, we're the most successful church startup in the history here. And, and Jesus says, well, you know what, guys? We got to run from success. You see, the disciples don't get surrender. The disciples don't get what Jesus is doing early on in the morning. You see, Jesus isn't praying after failure. You know, he's not praying after a day that just went up in flames or crashed and burned. He, he's praying after a day that was really good. And he knows that what's harder for a Christian sometimes to handle is not failure, it's success. Because we will get caught up in the success. And we will start to own the success and we'll start turning inward rather than looking upward. And we'll think the success is ours. And we will allow our successes to determine our value. Success can be a dangerous thing in Christianity. You know, I don't like failure, but, but when you fail, you kind of know what to do. You need to humble yourself. You need to learn from your failures. You need to go to God in prayer and, and figure out how do, what do I need to do differently. But success, the danger there is to think, well, well I don't need help with this. After an incredible day of ministry, are you kidding me? We'll just do the same thing again over and just do it over and over and the next day and the next day and the next day. We're turning the synagogue upside down. Peter's mother-in-law is healed. We can put her out there. She can give a testimony as the, people, as the people come in. And Jesus has to realize, I'm not going to get caught up in all this. And something happened in those wee hours of the morning. And he said, this isn't what I'm about. This is not what I'm supposed to do today. This isn't where I'm supposed to stay, where I'm supposed to be. And the answer comes from that pause in chapter 1. Not in the action of chapter 1. You see, the disciples have the right Messiah. They have the, the Christ, but they have the wrong mission at this point. It won't be till chapter 8 when Jesus asks them and says, Who do you say that I am? And that's kind of like the fulcrum of the entire, of the entire book. Mark is 16 chapters long. There's, a, there's like a pivot point there at, at chapter 8 when he asks, Who do you say, think that I am? And they know he's the son of God, but they're not really fully going to understand that till you get to all the way to, to chapter 16. I hope you're reading the book. But they have no idea what his purpose or no clue what his purpose is, and, and they'll miss this until the last chapter of the book. And there's a warning in there for those of us who are Jesus followers. Let's not think that God is useful. Let's not think that God is useful because he answers prayer. He makes the job go better. 
He helps us with our sickness. He helps me with my finances. The last thing the church can ever do is just to start chanting and, and singing, oh, God is useful, God is useful. No, God is worthy. He is worthy. Peter talked about this last week. It's, it's, it's the whole root meaning of, of worship. It's describing the honor, the glory that's due to God. That's what worship is. God is worthy. He is worthy simply and only because he's touched me and he's touched you. And he's changed the brokenness. He's taken the, uh, into forgiveness. The old me is dead and gone. There's a new person, a new creature, and we have a purpose. And for that alone, he is worthy. The disciples come and say, Master, the entire town's back. Oh, it's going to be good. Jesus, you're going to take us down that yellow brick road. And Jesus realizes in page one, you guys can't handle success. And they won't understand it to the last chapter. So let's go here. Let's, let's look at, at the next thing here, the secret to prayer. These are going to go regular quickly. They're all saying virtually the same thing, but hopefully it'll help us understand what happened in that moment. The secret to prayer is simply having secret prayers. That's the secret to prayer. The secret to prayer is simply having secret prayers. It's not the length of your public prayers that count. It's the power of your private prayers. I don't care if you can pray on a street corner for 10 hours a day. How's your private prayer? How's your time when you're alone with the Father? Look what Jesus prayed for here in the scripture. Wait a minute. It's not there, is it? It's because it's secret. Oh, if it were there, you know what we would do? We would put it on a coffee mug. We would put it on a bumper sticker. We'd, we'd sell it along with Jesus junk in a Christian bookstore. The secret to prayer is simply that you pray. That you pray in your, your own language, in your own voice, in a real authentic, transparent manner. You don't try to fake it. You don't try to manufacture something. If, 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 God's, if God's given you the gift of tongues to pray in a heavenly language, then so be it. But don't force things. You know, I've heard, I've heard people, some people that I know, and, and, you know, they talk regular English whenever we're talking, conversing. But anytime they pray, you know, when, when they pray publicly, all of a sudden they lapse back into King James or something. Like God only understands, you know, King James English. You know, I have three grown kids and, and, and two grand, grandchildren, and they all talk differently and when they talk to me. You know, and I don't ask my one child to talk to me like the other child does or my, or my grandkids to talk to me the way their parents do. I want them to talk to me genuinely and authentically how they are. I want them to share what's on, on their minds, not what they think their parents want them to say or what they, the way their siblings would do it. The secret to prayer is just that you pray, which begs the question, so what is prayer? And I'm glad you asked. We'll give you five quick things here. The first thing is prayer is not something we do. It's someone we're with. Prayer is not something we do. It's someone we're with. Prayer is to our relationship with God as blood is to the body. You need your blood that's in your body. Agree with me? You take the blood away... You know, we need to call them more. You take prayer out of the relationship with God, and then, you know, how do you have a relationship? I can't understand people that tell me they're a Christian, but they don't pray. They don't have a one-on-one -on -one prayer time with the Lord. Have you ever had a relationship with someone that you, that you don't talk to? Well, it's probably not a very good relationship. It's probably you call them an enemy or, or you, you call them a jerk or some other 
word that you won't use here in chapel. The people we don't talk to is because we don't want to talk to them. You've never had a good relationship with someone that you do not communicate with. And prayer is not how you do it, it's who you're with. Which brings you to the second thing here. And that is prayer is not about getting what we want, but connecting with whom we're talking to. It's not about getting what we want, but connecting with whom we are talking to. The goal of prayer is not just getting what you want. You've got this checklist of things that you're, you'd say, oh, well, it says he'll give me the desires of my heart. Well, you need to read all of Scripture, take all the counsel of Scripture, and understand the context of Scripture. The goal of prayer is to connect with God. You know, how many of you, when you go in to pray, you know, I don't want you to raise your hand, but how many, when you go to pray, you, you know, the goal is to, to bring your laundry list? Kind of, kind of like a little kid with the, with the, you know, hey, Santa, please bring this to me. Unfortunately, I know a lot of people that are that way. Our goal in prayer should be to connect with God, not to get through our list. If we're practicing the presence of God, it's also both talking and listening. Talking and listening. And this is hard sometimes, isn't it? You find yourself praying and you realize, wait a minute, I'm doing all the talking. Sometimes I need to just shut up and listen. Dan Rather, the CBS anchor, once asked Mother Teresa what she said during her prayer time. And she answered, I listen. So Dan turned the question around. He said, well, then what does God say? And Mother Teresa smiled and said, well, he listens too. And for an instant, Rather was like kind of befuddled, didn't know what to say. And Mother Teresa added and said, if you don't understand that, I can't explain it to you. The goal of prayer is being in the presence of God. And I don't know what happened in those moments that morning there when Jesus left the house, but here's what I bet, that Jesus didn't bring a list. Because when you bring a list and you're focused on your list, it's hard for you to hear. But he did walk away knowing who he was, knowing what he needed to do, and knowing where he needed to do it. In those moments, he heard, he felt, he sensed a whisper, a shout, a proclamation. I don't know what it was because we're not giving it here. Because if we, if we had it, we would chase after the mantra, not the master. We're not told what he did, but in those moments, being with God, he understood, he heard, and he knew. You see, prayer is the key to union with God and separation from the enemy. Prayer is the key to union with God and separation from the enemy. Many Christians feel that, that prayer is awkward. Of course it's awkward. Building any relationship, even with, with a human being, is, is, is awkward. How much more is it, is it going to be awkward you know, to building a relationship with the creator of the universe that you can't necessarily see with your physical eyes? Luann is the, is the love of my life. But those first few dates, and we were working together at the same place and then going out, they were kind of awkward. They, you know, I didn't want to, what do I say to her, you know? I don't want to seem like a dork. And it, we, this past uh, couple months ago, we were RVing, and we, we took a, along, I ordered a copy. The first movie, the first date we ever went on, we went to see a movie called Roller Coaster. And uh, none of you have heard of it, I know. <laughs> and uh, I, I was actually able to find a DVD, and a couple months ago in the RV, we watched, we, the, for the first time, and the, we never watched it again, Okay. <laughs> Uh, back then, but I said, let's look at the movie that we, that we watched our first date, and now I know why we never watched it again, but anyway, <laughs> didn't, didn't remember it, 
But even, you know, dating and, 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 and building a relationship, dating and, and getting married, it's, it's, it takes uh, breaking through this awkwardness. And even after 44 years of, of getting to know one another, you know, it's still awkward sometimes. And we've taught communication seminars for couples. It's not always easy if you're honest. You practice the presence of a God who cannot, who will not ever take his eyes off of you because you're his child. He made you, he knit you, and he formed you in your mother's womb. He knows every single hair, or if you don't have any, he knows whatever you have on the top of your head. He knows every single hair on the top of your head. Has it ever dawned on you the immensity of God's love for you? For you? You don't deserve it. I know you don't earn it. And that's the point of this book. God still loves you and me like that. He wants us to sit in his presence, to shut up our mind to what's going on, all the distractions that are going on outside, all the troubles, and just practice the presence of God, a God who's there until you realize who you are, what you're supposed to be doing, and where you're supposed to do it. It doesn't depend, your worth doesn't depend upon the size of your bank account. It doesn't depend upon your job. It doesn't depend upon how many houses you have or what kind of car you drive. Your worth is to depend upon this God that loves you. And there's nothing that you or I can do to make God love us any less. There's nothing you or I can do to make him love us any more. The key to a union with God and a separation from the enemy. You see, prayer is also more about changing our lives, not changing God's mind. You know, we're not coming to try to direct God on how to do my life. I'm not, coming to, I'm not coming to God saying, you know, God, I have a better idea here. You know, I'm, I'm forward. I have a better idea. I'm coming to a God whose main goal is to teach, and, and I say, okay, God, just change me. Remember the prodigal son? The prodigal son started off going to his dad saying, Dad, give me, give me, give me, give me. Then he off and he blew it all. And he had to be broken down because the relationship was broken. But when he went back to the father, what did he say? He didn't say, give me. He said, Father make me. Whatever you want me to be. If it's a servant, make me a servant. That's fine with me. He went from saying, give me, to make me. And that renewed the relationship between the prodigal son and his father. Jesus says, we're going somewhere else because my mission, my role, is to teach. This week, I encourage you to practice the presence of God. It may be awkward. It may be hard to concentrate sometimes. You may feel like a dork. But something happened in chapter 1 that shows us how to deal with success. And it will be followed up in the end in a garden to show us how to deal with what some may say was failure. And it will be a pattern throughout the entire book. It's not necessarily in the action that we find Christianity it's in the solitude, it's in the surrender that we find Christ. Will you practice the presence of God? Thank you for joining us for this message. For more information on Chapel Mall and the ministry of Sky Valley Chapel, please visit our website at sv.com. 
M-I-N.com. You can support this ministry on our website, Facebook page, or by downloading our app in the Apple or Google Play Store. Have a blessed day.